Infirmary Media. Start. People engage to stop a jewel in decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jewel in decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and on this week's episode, we take a look at the unexplained and the mysterious. As I will be representing 1977 alongside these men. First off, Dueling with the Unexplained of 1988. Say hello to the one we call Man Crush. Yes, I have Unexplained of 1988, and this is not Unexplained. I took that shirt that I lost with last week where I went, I fucking got shut out, <laughs> lit that shit in a fire, then a tree fell down on my shed, <laughs> and I had bees in my house. I shouldn't have fucking done that. That's Unexplained shit, but I don't know. Yeah, 1988, let's do it. Also returning to the panel this week is the host of the Miscast Commentary Podcast, Dueling with the Unexplained of 1995. Please welcome Joe Finley. I can explain the 90s. It was nothing but depression, weed, and grunge music, but it was fantastic, and I'm going to relish my time in 1985. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So, this week behind the bench is an expert on the baffling and the bewildering, the unsolved and the undiscovered. He's the host of the Hysteria 51 podcast. All rise and welcome Judge Brent Hand. I like to think that, you know, I'm an expert because I can just bullshit with a straight face. So, I mean, you know, that's how I make my living, you know, just just, just do that. And also... I got tired of losing on here constantly, so I'm like, can I be a judge? And you're like, okay, that's fine. I asked Brent like a month ago. He's like, yeah, can I judge? Like, first thing, I was like, yeah, all right. It makes my life easier. I don't have to go find somebody. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, TV, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. All right, duelers, like a wise man once said, I get knocked down. But I get up again, and you're never going to keep me down, because it's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go down to our judge for this episode, Mr. Brent Hand, for the official coin toss. All right, so I don't have a coin in front of me, but I do have a koozie, and it's two-sided. So we're going to do it this way. All right, well, Man Crush, you got shut out last week, and Joe Finley, you're returning to the show, so the coin toss this week will be between you guys. Thanks for bringing that up. I tell you what, I'm calling a fast audible on that. I'm not doing the koozie. I'm going to do a coaster. You guys can see it here. Wow. We have the side with junk on it. 
and the plain side. <laughs> That's the second coaster in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you call it? Sam Levine had a coaster last week that said, like, don't put your fucking shit on my table or something like that. <laughs> uh, this is thanks for buying stickers from us. <laughs> oh, the old sticker mule. mule. I get like a thousand of these. Uh, it's a free ad for sticker mule. All right. So who's that? Joe, are you calling it? Are you, or, or yeah, sure. Man, crush, who's okay, Joe. Okay. I'll call it. And when I make a choice between junk or no junk, I always choose junk. <laughs> okay. So you're calling junk. Oh, here we go. It's junk. Yeah, of course. Junk always wins. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, you win the coin toss. Get to select our first category. Where are we going? Oh, uh, let's go into the hot products. That's <laughs> that was was it that sound confident enough? <laughs> Misery day. I hate that game. All righty. Let's go to July 9th, nineteen ninety-five. I'm going to take you to a best selling uh youth novel and it spawned a series of novels a trilogy in fact which then also spawned a movie which then also spawned a tv series as uh somebody on this podcast says won't name names this baby's got legs i'm gonna talk about a book called northern lights we don't know it as that though in north america it was known as the golden compass the first in the trilogy of His Dark Materials. Uh, the book centers around Lyra Bellacqua, a 12-year-old girl. Uh, she travels with her demon, a physical representation of her soul, which is this tiny little animal that changes shape. Uh, they set off for the, uh, to the Arctic in search of her missing friend and an imprisoned uncle who experiments with a mysterious substance of elementary particles called dust. Uh, the book was a very anti-theocratic book. It was actually banned by the Catholic board. It is... Uh, a permanent ban. Uh, it is not on their acceptable reading list. Uh, rumors were that this was actually written as a direct rebuttal for the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, its success was quite big. It actually won, uh, in Britain, it won the Carnegie Medal, which honors one British book each year. And then it was voted by the public as the best of all of those books. So the winner from each year was polled, and that was won as the best of the best. Uh, from their books, and it also won the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize, uh, which, it again, honors one book a year, but only, only one time can an author receive it. So once you've received it, you're never eligible again for any of your other books, and he's one of only six people in the history of both of those awards to actually win both of them. Um, excuse me, because something just blocked my notes. There we go. Uh, the trilogy spawned a movie... Uh, the Golden Compass in 2007, and currently it is on air on HBO as a series called His Dark Materials, which just recently ended season one, and season two, whenever the world stops being on fire, will be on its way. It has been very well received and has been a uh, a very large book in the youth community. So His Dark Materials, The Golden Compass. I thought for sure you're going goosebumps at first. <laughs> I was, and then you you said that, and I was like, oh. That's why you went round one. <laughs> All right. Well, what do you have for round one, Man Crush? All right. So let's go to 1988. I don't have an exact date. These did come out in 1988. Um, but here's another one. Like a few episodes back, you know, I had something that was near and dear to me. And back in 1988, aside from collecting comics, I was also a huge card collector. And not that much of my sports cards are actually worth much anymore. I mean, some of the niche like series of cards, they do actually hold up more because people actually want to see them and display them. Like you'll hardly ever go into somebody's house and see like a 1989 upper deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card on the wall. 
but you're more apt to see someone have a Fright Flicks card displayed on their homes. And this is what my pick is. 1988 Tops released a set of cards called Fright Flicks. And these were, uh, it was a mix of 15 different horror films. The entire set was 90 cards. And aside from like the horror aspect, I think it's more unexplained that Tops was able to license all of these movies in one set. You had Alien, Aliens, An American Werewolf in London, Day of the Dead, The Fly, Fright Night, Ghostbusters, A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 through 3, Poltergeist 1 and 2, Predator, Pumpkinhead, and Vengeance of the Demon, all in one set. I mean, the fact that they got those all together licensed is fucking amazing. And like upon receiving these packs, you were greeted right in the front. You had a different image on every pack for like your favorite horror character. Uh, And then you would actually, you know what? I still have a few unopened packs of these and I'm going to unwrap one of them right fucking now. It's been sitting for 32 (laughs) years. I think it's on time. It's that time actually. To unleash the Kraken. So let's see what I got here. I actually hope it's got a piece of gum in there that slices your arm open. As you guys can see, this is still fucking what sealed. The, is that the, oh, predator? the Predator on the cover? I, I remember the that. Predator on the front. There's nine cards in this pack, one sticker, and one stick of bubble gum. You got to chew it. Let's see what this sounds like. No, that, at, at that age, the gum chews you. Can, you. can you hear it? Can you hear the rip? Here we go. That wasn't nearly as compelling as, like, the average ASMR video. Yeah, I kind of feel like fucking uh, Geraldo Rivera right now. <laughs> well, the gum is actually stuck to the back of the, the, uh, the last card. It's a weird shade of pink these days. Uh-huh. Uh, but let's let's not move that around too much. I don't want to fucking touch me. I got, uh, I got a, a Freddy Krueger. It says, whoo, I'm really shot. I got a... Uh, a Freddy Krueger. Another Freddy Krueger where he's he's eating a chick, which is pretty awesome. It said, when you said you'd want to have me for dinner, I didn't think this is what you meant. Uh, we got another Freddy Krueger. It says, all right, bring back the lighter for a refund. These look like they're from Dream Warriors. I didn't, too, know, I didn't know we could read the products at each other. I'm going to get my copy of the Golden Compass. Because oh, my, my product's actually good. Uh, another Freddy Krueger. He's popping out somebody's stomach. Says, "I must have ate someone." Oh, this is Fright Night. Says, "Man, that soup is hot." Man, these are fucking pretty awesome. I got it. Oh, <laughs> do the Freddy sticker. Oh, that's a nice one. Uh, that's a nice one. I'll get stuck on something. Uh, oh, an alien on a face. Says, "Try the shrimp tempura. It's delicious." <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what movie. Oh, this is from The Fly says i'll tell you that nuclear plant is safe and it's the fly all fucking skin (laughs) falling off and shit another one from aliens is do i get extra sauce with these ribs and then the one where the fucking gum is like perma attached to the back is from poltergeist it says have have you seen your dentist this year which is really fitting because that's the one with the fucking gum stuck to it now if you peel off the gum carefully does it have the imprint of what's on the card like it was a piece of silly putty? I don't know. Let's, let's see if it... Oh, dude. That gum is not coming off. <laughs> oh, no. That is not coming off. No, nah, I'm not even going to attempt it. It's gonna. It'll peel the cardboard right off. It is permanently oh. bonded to the card after all these years. I will post this to the Facebook group. That's funny. <laughs> wow. But there it is. There's the wax pack. It's open. Tops. Fright Flicks. Trading cards 1988. Excellent pick. 
All right, gentlemen. So for my pick, I had 1977. And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about something we don't often bring up for hot products enough on this show, I feel like, because it was such a part of all of our use. And that's board games. So 1977, if you want, if you were into cryptozoology, the mysterious, the unknown, you would have rushed out to the stores and picked up a copy of Bigfoot, the board game by Milton Bradley. You and a buddy come to Alaska looking for gold, even though the dreadful Bigfoot has been sighted in the mountains. Other prospectors and you must avoid crossing paths with the creature or else you will leave the mountains forever. So in this board game, kind of the gameplay is set up like your average children's game, like a shoots and ladders where you have to get from point A to point B and the course kind of winds around. Well, there's a giant plastic Bigfoot that has 10 discs inside of Bigfoot. Five of them are blank. Five of them have a footprint. Anytime somebody lands on a Bigfoot space on the board, they have to roll the dice to move Bigfoot. Every time Bigfoot steps somewhere, you push down and it releases a disc. If your character gets stamped with a disc with a foot, you're out of the game and you only have two lives. Now, one of the ingenious things about this game, unlike most board games from the 70s and the 80s, is that as the game goes on, gameplay actually speeds up. Because as we all remember, board games were notoriously long. This one, after the first elimination or two, the gameplay speeds up. So it's actually a pretty quick and fun game to play. So that's what I got for my hot products. Bigfoot, the board game by Milton Bradley. All right. So <clears throat> let's go back in order of years. I'll start uh, Mark 77 Bigfoot. I was a big board game fan when I was a kid. I don't remember that. Was it Milton Bradley? Or did it, do you even know? Yeah, there was who was it? It was like, Milton Bradley that put it out. There was like three places that made fucking board games. So <laughs> that's a <laughs> there was Milton guess, Bradley, you know? Hasbro, Hasbro, and, yeah. Parker and Parker Brothers, really. Parker Brothers, yep. And some of them, it's funny because they would pass rights. Like you could have Ouija boards and crap that were from different, you know, one of them, and right. they, they changed, and two years later it's from the other. But that's awesome, and it's like right in the wheelhouse of the unexplained. And I'm sad to say, I, I've never even heard of it. You know, so, and then, uh, <laughs> man, crush eighty eight. I got a funny thing about this because literally last weekend. My wife and I, we had nothing to do. It's like a Sunday or a Saturday. We're going to take a drive. And we go to this place called uh, Chic, Geek, and Antique. And it's like this geek antique store. But they have like your normal antique stuff and then tons of comics and robots. Like, you know, the 80s robots like Robbie yeah, and all that stuff. Yep. They have tons of them. So just a, a bunch of fun. They had literally hundreds and hundreds of fright packs there one dollar a pack wow. and it's right up front they're all a dollar and he's like we've had these for years i can't sell them <laughs> <laughs> and he also had like a team and alf and all those and they all have that yellow uh the same color that yellow yeah, the yellow wax pack? on the outside yeah, yeah wax pack that's but it's funny because i didn't really i mean i remember cards i never collected them other than the occasional um, garbage pail kid or something like that. And then I literally was just looking at those last weekend. They actually have a little, they have facts on the back too. Unless there's gum stuck on the back. Like Freddie's batting average and <laughs> RBI and shit. <laughs> he killed and raped uh, 17 women. Children, by the way. It was not women. Children. <laughs> How many souls bedded in did he have in 84? <laughs> yeah, SBIs. <laughs> 
Uh, Joe95, you had the Golden Compass, Northern Lights. Uh, the accolades were nonstop. Uh, I'm familiar with the movie. I've never seen it, and I know zero about it. Uh, I don't know if that uh, bodes bad for me or not. I just I, I haven't seen it, you know, and I like I said, I've heard of it. Um, probably because it was British, you know, and uh, it is crazy, though, like you said, that they are like, yeah, you can't read that. You're Catholic. That's You're going straight to hell. And the whole, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a very Christian uh, a book, so that's interesting. I didn't know any of that. If I got to pick my pick, though, the one that I I I didn't know two of them. How sad is that? So I'm going with the uh, the fright flicks from Tops, just because I saw them, and I could go buy a whole shit ton of them for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> the, the hot product that you have no problem finding. Right, right. It's the hot product that's so hot <laughs> it's still on shelf. <laughs> Literally. I licked the gum and then I got a little scared because it kind of looks like the surface of the moon on this piece of gum. So, uh, plus it's stuck to the back of the cart. So obviously there's no way I could chew this shit, but it is what it is. I lived. Oh, I'm I'm still living right now. We'll we'll monitor your situation. (laughs) Let's see how it is by round five. Hashtag 2020. All right, man crush, you pick up your first point in two weeks and you take control of the board. (laughs) (laughs) Scumbag. Uh, let's go to, you know what? We might as well stay on this topic. Let's go television. All right, so we got October 8th, 1988. This is a horror anthology TV series. It was actually presented the backstory for an infamous movie series that we had, like, bits and pieces of that background story for four years at the time. But we didn't get the whole thing. And this show itself featured a horror character we all love. We just talked about him. But aside from the pilot and a few other episodes, he basically just served as the show host, much like the Crypt Keeper and Tales from the Crypt. Uh, but the origin story that would serve as the pilot to the series was actually directed by Horror Hall of Famer Toby Hooper. And as you'll see in a minute, it'll turn out to be quite the pairing. Uh, being that this was 1988, New Line Pictures, I just threw this in there because I found these names and it's fucking awesome. They casted some gems in the series who were totally unknown at the time. They had Brad Pitt in this, Morris Chestnut. Uh, I always fuck up her name, but what is it? Mariska Hargitay? Har- Did I say Mariska that, right? Hargitay. Hargitay. Uh, Lori Petty. Bill Mosley. Obviously, he was a little bit known in the horror stuff. Uh, Julie Chen of CBS fame was on this. Our dear friend Diane Franklin was in this. And even Dueling Decades hopeful future judge Joyce Heiser from Just One of the Guys was also in this. And if you guys are on Twitter, shoot Joyce a tweet and ask her when she's coming on the show because we still don't know. And she wants it's a, to. It's but... okay. He's got tits. <laughs> <laughs> But let's take a look at the pilot episode of the series. That episode's titled No More Mr. Nice Guys. And as I said before, it's directed by horror royalty Toby Hooper. And it was written by Michael DeLuca, David Ehrman, and based on the characters of Wes Craven. And you know where I'm going with this one. It also stars the amazing Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger. And for the first time ever, we get to see the story leading up to Freddy being burned to death by the Springwood parents. You get to see Freddy getting caught after trying to kill the cops. or It was like a twin daughters of a cop. And then uh, he gets let go because they never read him his Miranda rights. 
and then he goes back out. And I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it. It's pretty good if you can find a good copy. I'm not sure if you'll find one on YouTube, uh, but you might have to pay for it if you want a good copy of it. Uh, the series lasted for two seasons and went on for 44 episodes. I believe in my area it was on WWOR because it was syndicated, so I'm not sure what channel it was on for you guys. But after the first episode, which served as Freddy's death story, the episodes after that, they would kind of follow... Like I mentioned earlier, it's an anthology. You had two horror stories split every episode. And this was also the first time that a horror giant like Freddy Krueger would transcend the medium of motion pictures into television simultaneously. And before anybody goes out there and says, oh, well, Friday the 13th came out in 1987. Yeah, Jason Voorhees was not in Friday the 13th. That just happened to be the same name. Yeah, yeah it just it was just the same name. They just used it. This one he's actually in, even though like it's weird. If you watch the series, they always darkened his face or he was like hiding. But they credit Robert Englund. That's because he didn't want to sit in the fucking chair and go through all the makeup. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. It's possible it was a budget thing. But yeah, this is Freddy's Nightmares. Uh, deba- it debuted on uh, October eighth, nineteen eighty-eight. All right, Joe Finley, what do you have for the television round? All right, well, let's get into a little March Madness with March 26, 1995. I don't know even know why I said March Madness, because it's got nothing to do with basketball. But I will uh, follow along the anthology lines, because I also have an anthology, and it is of the sci-fi variety. Uh, this is an anthology that had writers like Stephen King, Harlan Ellison, and George R.R. R. Martin writing episodes. Uh, each episode is its own isolated story. Uh, it featured a lot of uh, big actors, too, in its day. Ryan Reynolds, Robert Patrick, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Josh Brolin, Ryan Phillippe, uh, Brent Spiner, and Mark Hamill, Leonard Nimoy, uh, uh, Robert Loja, who was the answer to the first question you guys ever asked me. Uh, and <laughs> wait, and uh, what else do we got? Uh, Roddy Piper was... What's your was favorite a- Robert Loja Ro- Ro- movie? <laughs> yes. That was it. I love that. Uh, Nathan Fillion uh, was in an episode. Ron Perlman, all sorts of people. Uh, and it even got to be directed by actors like uh, Catherine O'Hara, Rebecca DeMornay, Lou Diamond Phillips, making their directorial debuts, giving them a little uh, stretch out. And just to make it awesome, it was filmed in Canada. I'm talking about The Outer Limits, the remake to the 1963 anthology series. But this one went a little bit further while the 63 series lasted two seasons. This one went for seven seasons on uh, Showtime and the Sci-Fi Network. And it was just one of those uh, awesome ones along the lines of The Twilight Zone or anything like it. Uh, the Your individual stories, your character actors out the ass. Like all the people I named, I didn't even name everybody I listed. And I didn't list everybody I saw who was like, holy crap, this person was in it because i mean you can only go for so long without uh you know wearing out your welcome on stuff like that i was nominated for two emmys it won one and then following the series uh 11 books were written based on episodes of the show so uh like full-on novels were written uh based on individual episodes so uh that's what i got from march 26th the outer limits wow all right, guys, so for my television episode, let's basically take everything you guys just said, smack it up, flip it, rub it down, and uh, we're going back to 1977 for this one, because this television show has just as good as an ensemble cast as both of those. This show featured Casey Kasem, Maureen McCormick, the aforementioned Robert Loja, Jamie Lee Curtis, Robert England, Mark Harmon, Martin Cove, 
and even Rick Springfield, Melanie Griffith, and future Dueling Decades judge, hopefully, Miss Valerie Bertinelli. Uh, <laughs> even featured Elton John in an episode. The show was nominated for an Emmy in 1977, but unfortunately was canceled abruptly in 1979, and then the network suffered what they called cancellation remorse. Years later, an ABC executive said that canceling this television show was one of his biggest regrets in the television industry. So, debuting January 30th, 1977, I give you the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries. We're going to go to the Tucson Daily Citizen in Tucson, Arizona, January 28th, 1977, in a newspaper headline reading, Alternating Mysteries Set Sunday. Something's bridged the generations gap like it wasn't even there. Pizza, ice cream, Nancy Drew, and the Hardy Boys. It's that theory that ABC will start Sunday to alternate hour-long Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew mysteries from 6 to 7, with the Brady Bunch Hour thrown in every five weeks. And then the article goes on to talk about the great legacy of the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys books that I'm sure we all grew up reading on. And now, in 1977, you can see them on your big screen TV of, you know, 13 inches. Because it's 1977. so But it weighed 603 pounds. Right. So. <laughs> uh, they ended up casting Sean Cassidy because they wanted kind of a, a younger version of his stepbrother. So they just got the brother. <laughs> and uh, it also starred Parker Stevenson and Pamela Sue Martin as Nancy Drew for the first two seasons. So that's what I got from my television. The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries in their very first episode. January 30th, 1977, the episode titled The Mystery of the Haunted House. It's where the Hardys investigate the disappearance of their own father in a case involving a haunted house, a graveyard, and espionage. That's what I got for the television round. Let's kick it over to our judge, Brent Han, for the ruling. All right, so going in the order that I wrote your names down beforehand. <laughs> that's our good doing. So, uh, Joe, The Outer Limits, I was a fan. It was fantastic, and it is. It, it kind of goes with now they've brought back the Twilight Zone, and they have huge named people in it because I think it's just like one of those, like, they're doing a favor, they know someone, or it's it's the fun in vogue thing to do, and they had a, a huge cast. And it was really good. I didn't even know that they had all the, the novels that spun off of it, but uh, it was a great show. Um, Mark, the Hardy Boys need to do... I didn't know this existed. My sister was a fan beforehand, and we've talked about it. Um, I was a baby when it was on, so I don't... Uh, I didn't really watch that, you know, but um, the books have been around forever. I was never a big into that. I liked... Uh, I was like Encyclopedia Brown. Do you remember that? Uh, Encyclopedia Brown Boy Detective or whatever. I remember Encyclopedia <laughs> Britannica. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Not quite the same. Not quite the same. It was a different read. But yeah, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew are just, you know, the characters that don't quit. You know, they're still around, you know, and they're still making books, kind of like the aforementioned Goosebumps and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and then Man Crush, Freddy's Nightmares, another big one, kind of the similar to The Outer Limits as far as um, huge cast and it was great that it was not confusing that it wasn't called, you know, it was called Freddy's Nightmares and Freddy was actually a part of it, unlike the Friday the 13th, the series, uh, which I have the whole thing. And like you said, it just happens to be ghost Nobody. stories and things like that. Yeah, yeah there's no one. Uh, Robert England, the little engine that could, man, he just keeps pumping them out. And he's like, I'm done with Freddy. And I just saw an interview. He's like, well, 
I don't know. I'm like, someone needs a paycheck. <laughs> you know, so that's a good. So um, this is a hard one for me. Um, I th- I think I'm going to go with Joe and the Outer Limits just because I think that I enjoyed it more and it's it's kind of lived longer, um, so to speak. Um, Freddy, uh, though, is still chugging out there, but I'm, I'm going to go with Outer Limits on this one. All right, Joe Finley, you pick up a point, tie the game, but more importantly, you take control of the board. What category are we going with for our final one-point round? Ooh, hey. I'm hemming and hawing. I'm going to go with the news. All righty. Uh, on July 27th, 1995, uh, Jody Heisentrude, an anchor for a local CBS uh, news program was running late for work four o'clock in the morning she gets a call from her producer she says yep sorry i slept in i'm gonna be right there six o'clock rolls around she still has not arrived uh calls were made people went looking for her and they found her car in her parking garage with the key just laying down next to the car she was missing uh, her family ended up hiring two different private ev- investigators. Uh, they appeared on America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries in relation to this case. Uh, the family then went on to L.A., uh, went to L.A. where they filmed a pilot called Psychic Detectives, where they actually spoke to three different psychics looking uh, for uh, for Jody. And what happened was they got leads in every single one of from every single one of these shows, but nothing that put out a suspect or any clues as to her fate or her whereabouts. Uh, after all of that was uh, said and done, a thousand interviews were done by police and the, uh, and the investigators. And in 2001, she was legally declared dead in 2000. Eight, the story continued. Uh, reporters get a copy of her personal journals that were sent anonymously, and it had everybody thinking that it might have something to do with the killer, and they were like they were sending something in. It ends up being that it was the uh, wife of the police chief who had access to the the original journals. She made copies of the journals and sent them in, and nobody found out why she sent them. She gave no reason for why she did it. I don't know if it was just to reinvigorate interest in the case or whatever. Uh, But to this day, this is an unsolved case. The FBI and uh, Iowa police are still, it is still an open case and they have no, absolutely no leads on it. So this is a truly unexplained one. Uh, Anchor Jody Heisentrout, missing, who knows? Bring in the darkness again, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the news round? All right, so let's go to a story from November 20th, 1988, and I'm going to paraphrase this article from the New York Times. It's about UFOs in Pine Bush, New York, and depending on where you're from, what you know about Pine Bush, New York, it's either the epicenter of alien activity in the East Coast, New York, some people say the world, I've heard it all, uh, it's right in my backyard. So having lived here for most of my life, I can attest to what's allegedly been seen in the sky for nearly a century in this area. And personally, myself, I actually saw a bizarre occurrence in the sky about two or three years ago, and I wasn't the only one that saw it. And of course, this is this happened during the time of social media. And I remember seeing multiple people on my Facebook that saw the same thing, putting their accounts on Facebook. Like, what was that? Kind of like the whole thing in Arizona that happened back in the 90s. It was like an early afternoon. I went outside to walk my dog. And there were two objects in the sky 
high up and they were flying side by side, going super fast, identical size, identical shape and identical movements. It was fucking weird. And I forgot, I got to look back into my, I, cause I have a picture of it. I didn't have video cause it was so far away. It was hard to, to video record it, but there were other people on my Facebook as well. So like shit's been going on here for fucking ever. Like people have been seeing stuff. So part of this article, and this is where I'm going to paraphrase. I'll just give you uh, the highlights really. Cause they just, it's New York times. So they just talk a bunch of shit, put a little bit of news, talk a lot more shit. So this is what the article says. It says, whatever the reason, strange sightings seem commonplace in the Hudson Valley. Hundreds of people, not just those who go out looking for them, have seen things in the sky that cannot be explained, says Philip Embrago, author of Night Siege, the Hudson Valley UFO sightings. These sightings caused a sensation in 1983-1984 in this area of New York. Uh, the suburbs, farmland stretching into western Connecticut, reports have seen far less frequent but it's still very steady, Embrago said. Most of all, it cannot easily be explained. Uh, and then it just goes on, and they, they skip to this lady, Ellen Kristall, who says, uh, Ellen Kristall believes. She says she saw something unusual at a cornfield off Sears Road, 20 miles from Middletown, which is not too far from where I am. And it says, soon after, she was first taken there by a magazine writer, Gazing over in a distant tree line while alone at night, she spotted what appeared to be a craft drifting slowly to the ground. After seeing something flutter, almost like a moth, she shined a spotlight into a wooded area where she says she saw a three and a half foot tall creature with a beige body and yellow eyes staring back at her. I mean, that was like the most interesting part of the article. But I mean, stories like these are very commonplace in this area. They they even hold in Pine Bush itself. There's a UFO fair every year, except for obviously fucking 2020. Of course, it's been canceled, but they had it like the last 20 years. They have this thing. It's huge. There's even a diner. I used to work in Pine Bush uh, for the school district a long time ago. So there's a, a diner called Cup and Saucer with an alien in front of it. There's barber shops with aliens in front of it. The whole town kind of centers around that. So regardless of what the story is about, this is something that's been going on for decades like I said before, actually as long ago as like a century ago. So it's been going on forever. And uh, in 1992, this lady, uh, Ellen Kristall that I just mentioned, she actually released a book called Silent Invasion, which is about like Pine Bush and all the weird occurrences in the area. I own that book. Yeah. So, I mean, that shit's fucking right down the road. So it's funny because I was actually supposed to have Mark's year and right. Mark had my year and he picked the story out and he's like, dude, is this by you? And I'm like, yeah. I fucking used to work right there. I know exactly where it is. So uh, just to get a chance to talk about kind of like hometown feel. Yeah. But, you know, people talk about Area 51 all the time and things like that. This is not there's no base. There's nothing around here. But it seems like this has been happening forever. And I know like, you know, maybe with Hysteria 51. I don't know if you guys have talked about Pine Bush ever before, but it's uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. The Hudson Valley flap. That's what they call it. Or the Hudson Valley incidents. Absolutely. Uh, it was huge back then and there's been other places, but yeah, that's a fun one. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you go back to like our local newspaper, which is times Tower record, just do a search for UFOs based on that. You'll get articles. Like I just pulled one. It was 2002. It was just like a, a guy went outside. He saw a UFO with his kid and he got it on videotape. So like this shit happens all the time here. And like, I think it's so commonplace. It doesn't get talked about here that much. 
but you hear people from other places know where you live. They're like, oh, Hudson Valley. Oh, the UFOs are? Maybe. <laughs> Everything's UFO if you're bad at spotting crap in the sky and identifying it. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that a plane? Nope. It's UFO. Well, what it, you would know better than me. What do they call the ones that are like triangle shaped? They triangle like craft a, or delta wing or, you know. Magna um, rays or some shit like that. Oh, that or, I don't know. Yeah. That, well, that's what they always call them over there. That was just who you played in Space Invaders, right? Maybe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So for my news story, we're going to go over to Ohio, August 15th, 1977. Uh, we're going to use the Big Ear Radio Telescope. And that was the date that they picked up the wow signal. Now, that had nothing to do with Olestra and a great brand of chips. But what it did have to do with was a radio signal from outer space that could have been communication from aliens and still to this day it is unsolved and they've never found the source so what happened on august 15th 1977 they had the big ear telescope pointing towards the skies and it picked up a weird signal on the four, uh, 1420 megahertz band frequency now what's interesting about that frequency is that's the same frequency that radio waves are emitted by natural hydrogen in space matter of fact we can't broadcast anything on 1420 megahertz anywhere on the globe it's actually illegal because that's the channel that scientists use because if there were to be extraterrestrial life most likely they'd know about hydrogen and that's the band that they would broadcast on so on this day we got a huge spike in signal and they still don't know where it came from the best way to kind of understand what the wow signal was is they had radio telescopes pointed toward the sky listening for a pin drop and for 72 seconds, we heard a stack of books drop. And we don't know why. So that's my news story, is the wow signal. Years later, they said it had to do with a couple of comets. But the scientists that originally discovered this said that, eh, chances are, it probably wasn't the comets. But I'm sure our great judge, Brent Hand, knows way more about the wow signal than I do. So let's turn it over to him. All right. So, Joe. Man, I I guess it's my dark side. Stories like that I love. I love Unsolved Mysteries. I, when Unsolved Mysteries came back out, I just watched, I binged in one sitting the entire first season. I love that it's Pluto TV has a 24-hour Unsolved Mysteries channel just playing it. <laughs> and this like, kind of feeds into that, you know, for better or worse, you know, this whole crime. I, I don't know what the fascination is, but I definitely fall into that. And so you have a, a news anchor that, especially because I spoke to her and she's, Sounds like she was abducted, you know, um, but man, what a crazy, crazy incident uh, to be unsolved all this time later, because usually things like that, someone slips up or someone tells or, you know, something happens. So that, I, I didn't know that one. That's really crazy. Man crush. Hudson Valley is huge. We've talked about um, the Hudson Valley flat before on the show. We haven't done an uh, on my show, Hysteria 51. We haven't done a a specific episode on it but we've talked about it with other flaps that have happened there is the you know the late 1800s airship flap the hudson valley flap of the the 80s which was like from 83 to 86 was when the most of it happened but it's never stopped um right. and things like that and it's just a fascinating thing and it is true like what you said people that see things all the time or it becomes commonplace you just go man and you don't <laughs> care anymore you know what i mean yeah. and that's funny because you know, there's shit in the sky. Yeah, I know, man. Oh, man, I got bees in my walls. You know? 
<laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like that, and that's why I started that article or that whole uh, thing with you know my account because mm-hmm. it it kind of went by the wayside. We all saw it, and then it was like, eh, whatever. It's kind of the same way with hardcore porn. The first time you see it, you're like, oh, my God. Then after a while, you're like, eh. I've got it on over there. I don't think I sound as disgusted as you just made it sound. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, it's more like that. Whoa, what do we got here? Oh, my. Mark the wow signal. Uh, I love this one. It's Mar- It's called wow because the researcher, when he was looking, he circled it and wrote wow with an exclamation right. point next to it. And it is true because it is the only thing that they've ever really got in all this time with SETI. Just listening forever. Now, the big, if you do want, and I think you just touched on this, but if you, the, the thought process is that it was the tail of a comet. Right. And they caught it, which is crazy because that's like, you know, just pointing up and, you know, it's like shooting into the sky and hoping you hit something, you know, and uh, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. And, and, you know, people have gone back and forth on that. And it's been in the news actually as of late because they were trying to see if the comment or what comment it was. could They might be able to get it again. Right. As it yeah. comes by. But um, that was one that is tantalizing to people because it's not really understood and it makes you go, wow, like, um, wow. <laughs> yeah. But like, um, you know, it, it 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 legitimizes the search or makes you think, man, we don't know what's really out there. And it makes you wonder when they're spending all this money, you know, researching that or, or funding SETI, which is, you know, it's privately done. Then you do find something where you go, I don't know what it is. (laughs) So you don't know. But I got to go with you, Mark. That's my favorite because I love the story. I love that story. And I think that it's um, it is important. And I think that, you know, as some shows say, keep your eyes to the skies, you know, and look and stuff. That was a hard one. I could have. That was a coin toss for all three of you because I thought they were really interesting ones. And uh, but the wow one, just because it's one of my favorite little uh, delicious little ufology nuggets out there all right so i tie up the game at one point apiece going into the first two point rounds now for the next round uh you know what gentlemen let's do some movies let's do some unexplained movies because i think this is going to be a nice segue from my story about the wow signal because we're going to jump ahead a few months from august 15th 1977 to december 14th 1977 to a feature film about getting a signal from outer space. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which, oddly enough, I'm going to come clean on this one. I saw this as a child, and my only vivid memory of it was, wow, this is a boring film. (laughs) And I've only seen clips of it since I was a child. So I sat down last night and watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, my. If you haven't watched this movie in a while, I highly recommend sitting down and watching it. The cinematography is just absolutely breathtaking. It's one of Spielberg's best as far as that's concerned. It won one Oscar and won 14 other awards and was nominated 38 other times. Of course, it stars Richard Dreyfuss and Terry Garr. It's just an absolute classic. So if you haven't seen it in a while, sit down, smoke a bowl, And enjoy Close Encounters of the Third Kind, released December 14th, 1977. All right, let's kick it over to Joe Finley. 
All right. Well, I'm going to take you to August 16th, 1995, and I'm going to take you uh, to a mystery movie and a movie that actually uh, is listed in AFI's top 10 mystery films of all time. And the movie asks one major question, who is Kaiser Sose? The Usual Suspects was released on August 16th. It finds the con man Verbal Kint being interrogated by the police following a massacre on a ship in L.A. Uh, the story is told through flashbacks as the police try to figure out what happened on that ship and who is the crime lord Kaiser Sose. Now, I'm going to mention some names here, and we're going to look at these through a 1995 lens and not a 2020 lens. Uh, directed by Brian Singer and starring Kevin Spacey, back when we liked him, and Benicio Del Toro, Gabriel Byrne, uh, Kevin Pollock, Chaz Palminteri, Stephen Baldwin, Pete Postlethwaite, a great cast. Uh, the movie won two Oscars in a Golden Globe. Uh, it got best screenplay in there. Uh, the Writers Guild, Guild of America has listed, listed it as the number 35 screenplay of all time. Uh, it was a big movie. It was a big movie for Brian Singer and uh, jumping his career off. Uh, it was a big movie for Kevin Spacey uh, getting him acting awards and all this sort of stuff and has that obviously uh, iconic scene with all of them. Give me the keys, you The one indeed. Uh, but that is that is my pick. We had a mystery. August 16th, The Usual Suspects. Give me a fucking key. What the fuck? Uh, in English, please. Anyhow, I would agree with your uh, your childhood self that uh, that movie is like watching paint dry. Yes. Um, not. Yeah, it's. I watched it again at the drive-in a couple years ago, and Are you, you're talking about Close yeah. Encounters. Yeah, dude, I'm I getting eaten by bugs, and I was like, movie. Oh my god, this is fucking terrible. I'm marking you down a negative point for that comment. Oh, <laughs> Every, everyone's got their own opinion. They all they're we're all assholes, you know. But like <laughs> that one movie, it's just like it's one of those movies where I gave it so many opportunities that I think it was built up and put on a pedestal. That when I finally got to watch it, is I don't know, I was probably in my teens. I was bored and it was sunk in my head. And then when I watched it again as an adult, it's just like, eh. Eh, it's no Independence Day. Like, I think I was at that point, you know? Uh, but here's one. I think mine is, is much more entertaining. Uh, we'll go November 4th, 1988, and back to uh, science fiction by one of the best filmmakers of all time, in my opinion. I watched this last night again, and I'm still amazed. It doesn't feel dated at all. Nada. Uh, matter of fact, with like all the bullshit being fed to us by the media every day, I feel like this makes more sense now than it did in 1988. I mean, the move, the movie here, it's based on a uh, a novel, I believe, or a short story actually by Ray Nelson called Eight O'clock in the Morning. And this movie would actually hit number one in the box office for the week it was released, which for this particular director is a feat because. It never happens. No matter how awesome this gents movies are, they always get slammed by critics and they always suffer at the box office. Yet most of his movies are always highly regarded after the fact. And we love them for years and years and years. So this is a story about a lonely homeless drifter by the name of John. And he would go on. This movie would go on to make $13 million at the box office, roughly $29 million in 2020. Although you'd never know his name was John because it's never mentioned in the entire movie. 
And in spite of debuting at number one, it didn't spend much time at the top. And sadly, the box office total is about on par with this legend's other movies. All right. The movie stars a novice actor at the time by the name of Roderick George Toombs. And as the story goes, Mr. Toombs met John Carpenter during WrestleMania three and Carpenter immediately knew this was the man for the lead role of this movie that he had coming out. But Roderick, we all know him as Roddy Roddy Piper, of course. And uh, he was immediately met with a dilemma because Carpenter had offered him this role, but Vincent Kennedy McMahon wasn't having it. Cause at the time Vince wanted to create his own movies and told Roddy not to do this movie, do our movie first. And Roddy said, fuck no, this is John Carpenter. And he went on to do that movie. They live. And indeed, uh, probably the smartest decision or one of the smartest decisions of Piper's life. The greatest on-screen fight of all time. Oh, no, it's fucking, it's it's fantastic. And, you know, if you're in the market for amazing six-minute alley brawls between two (laughs) men, chewing bubblegum, ugly-ass aliens that control society, dope-ass sunglasses, pirate radio signals, subliminal messages, creepy blind priests, mass consumption, commercialization, Meg... Foster's scary blue eyes. Thank you. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Women that look like they dipped their faces in cheese dip back in 1957. Interspecies fucking intercourse. And of course, ass kicking. Then John Carpenter's They Live is the movie for you. And that was released November 4th, 1988. (laughs) Wow. Oh, and I forgot to mention uh, that movie that he didn't take probably would have been No Holds Barred. Because that's the first WWF movie, and I mean, there's no fucking comparison. No, and he just no. would have been a jobber in that movie anyway. Uh, yeah, he wouldn't have gotten the lead role. No. Yeah, when Axe from Demolition. <laughs> it would have been a better choice. <laughs> all right, well, let's kick it down to our judge for this round, all right, Mr. All right. Brent Hand. This one is in another incredibly, incredibly hard uh, pick. The Usual Suspects is a fantastic movie um oddly um it's dated it had in a good way it has that that 90s feel to it you know you're watching a 90s movie when you watch that and i do not say that in any bad way you know what i mean and it's just fantastic <laughs> everyone was, even stephen baldwin was great in that movie you know what i mean like it's just a really really fun movie Mark, I don't care what anyone says. Close Encounters holds up now fantastically. I do like the story. When I was a kid and I saw it, it scared the shit out of me for some reason. Yeah. Um, and I'm a fat guy, so I am a little bit sad that they, they wasted all those mashed potatoes. But other than that, you know, I'm okay with the movie. Uh, no, I really like it. I do. And I, I think it's very imaginative. It's just a heady movie. And I think when people think of of alien movies they want a little bit more action and this one was yeah. more of like the draw out and then like you see them trying to like communicate it was almost like starman um yes. starman had more more um action but it was also like you've got to like the minutiae of the character you and i think that's something thing. i i picked up on and realized when i watched it as a child you don't pick up all the tiny and the little things and the subtlety of the film yeah are you talking about uh, naked uh, Jeff Bridges? <laughs> In Starman. No, I'm talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, my bad. Yeah, and I just love the communication. They're trying to communicate with the, the people at the end and all that stuff, you know, which, uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, they Live is a masterpiece, and I don't think it could have been the – it was like they knew they were making a cheesy, campy movie that 
was going to be fantastic, I think, because that's what it is for all its amazingness. It's also like the best B movie in the world who just yeah. happens to have like these, this amazing cast. Everyone is in there was great. And the idea is so fantastic. It's just amazing. And Rowdy Rowdy Piper, you know, at the end, he's like, ah, fuck it. He's going to get shot and he's going to try to like turn off the, the dish yeah. to, and, the, he, <laughs> and he knows he's going to die. He's like, you yeah, know, whatever. Yeah. You know, it is a fantastic movie. And it's one of those movies that, you know, you don't even understand. He's just like, oh, here's some glasses. What the hell? You know what I mean? It's just like, a, like I didn't even mean to do that. So I got to go with They Live. Uh, it's just a masterpiece. And, you know, it's um, all those movies, though, regardless of what anyone says, and very much including Close Encounter the third time, you should watch all those movies. You hit the nail on the head. That's my problem is I like the action portion. I do like slow movies if the story develops. Like, Usual Suspects is not the fastest movie, but the way that they put everything together, it's right. fucking great. Well, I think Close Encounters didn't know if it wanted to be a sci-fi movie, if it wanted to be a, a somewhat of a thriller uh, a little bit. You know, you don't know what's going on. Then there's like, all these psychological aspects of it. Any movie that's got, like, canaries where they're seen if they die and shit like that or whatever, I'm okay with it. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you picked up two points. You jump out to a big lead. Let's see if you can hold on to it heading into the music round. All right, well, I'm going to use this opportunity to defer because I just went anyway. Nobody wants to hear me twice. Uh, so let's uh, let's pass this one to 1995. Okay. Um, I actually have an answer to your question. What was the wow sound? It was actually a sound from exactly 18 years in the future, 19, August 15th, 1995. And the sound was coming from Outworld. This is the Mortal Kombat soundtrack. The soundtrack, uh, was, the score was done by George S. Clinton, who has done hundreds of movies, but uh, most notably for me, a ton of old canon films, including the Apple Avenging Force, the American Ninja movies. Uh, goes all the way down the line. Not to interrupt you, I had yeah. my canon movies t-shirt on and I switched, I changed it when I showered before oh. we got on here tonight. <laughs> Literally. I have a canon shirt. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, so uh, yeah, he, he did this. It is uh, primarily an electronic album uh, does feature some uh, rock in there. Uh, there's a geezer Butler song in there. There's actually a song by porn star Tracy Lords uh, on the album as well. Uh, but yeah, it is primarily, primarily electronic dance. And it was actually the first ever electronic dance album to go platinum in the United States. Uh, it was a gigantic soundtrack in a year of gigantic soundtracks it was uh demon knight and all these other there's the list was gigantic it made number two on the billboard list and was uh just a gigantic thing and i mean to this day when i hear mortal Kombat, the first thing i hear is the sound is that soundtrack song of the uh every every time without fail and then i always do the kino Liu Kang, just through the whole thing. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really fun soundtrack to a movie that I, I don't think people realize was as successful as it was. It was number one for three straight weeks and all this stuff. And yeah, and, uh, the soundtrack sales kind of, uh, ponied alongside that. So the Mortal Kombat soundtrack in 1995. Your soul is mine. Oh no. <laughs> 
All right, guys, so for my music selection, uh, we're going to go back to 1977 to a song that I didn't even know was about extraterrestrial life and aliens. And we've all heard this song 10 million times, I'm sure. Originally released as the first single from the album The Grand Illusion, I give you Come Sail Away by the band Styx. And you're like, what the hell does that have to do with aliens? Well, if you actually <laughs> read into the lyrics... They talk about their starship, right? Right, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it says, A gathering of angels appeared above my head. They sang a song of hope, and this is what they said. I thought that they were angels, but to my surprise, they climbed aboard their starship and headed for the skies. (laughs) Now, in a 2020 interview, just this year, Dennis DeYoung talked about the meaning of Come Sail Away. He says it's about yearning to be in a better place. But how do you get there? You go on a boat, on a ship, on angels' wings as you ascend with them? Is there something going on? A starship to the stars? Are they aliens? Is it Captain Kirk? You tell me. So 1977 was such a big year for extraterrestrials, UFOs. You had Come Sail Away. You had Close Encounters of the Third Kind. All of these happening within months of the wow signal. It kind of all came together. So, of course, Styx is going to stick some UFO references into their big hit song. Matter of fact, the cover of the single actually had a boat with a UFO ship flying right over top of it. So, released September 1977, I give you the song Come Sail Away that peaked at number 8 on the Billboard Hot 100. And the album The Grand Illusion achieved platinum status on the backs of this song. So let's wrap up this game and hear what Man Crush has for the music round. On this one, I will give you props, Mark, because uh, I saw Sticks four years ago, and for a bunch of old men, fucking amazing. They they didn't headline the show. They were like the mid-card act or whatever, and they they didn't steal it from Def Leppard. They were fucking awesome too, but like Sticks was fucking phenomenal for a band that's that dated. Yeah. Really good. Crazy side note about that, to tie everything together with the last episode, Come Sail Away was actually in the very first episode of Freaks and Geeks. Ah, yes. And you can't forget, you know, Cartman on South Park. That's right. Come Sail Away, Come Sail, you know. I had that album. (laughs) There you go. That's a great one. All right, so let's go uh, April 11th, 1988. One of my favorite albums in high school, probably one of the best heavy metal bands to ever walk this earth. Personally, this is probably my all-time favorite album of this band's. Uh, It's a slight shift in direction from their previous six albums, but it still has like the signature harmonies are there, amazing guitar riffs, and it's got the storytelling, which they're known for. But this time around, instead of like social commentary, this album is a concept album based around the power of clairvoyance. And, Of course, this is the ability, if you didn't know, it's the ability to see future events before they happen. Whether you believe in prophets or psychics, they definitely are part of the unexplained. Matter of fact, the initial track that was written for this album, it was inspired by the recent demise. Of course, I say recent of this 1987. She died 19 or this 1988. She died 1987 for the British clairvoyant at the time, Doris Stokes. Uh, she uh, and it was also uh, inspired by the book Seventh Son by uh, Orson Scott Card. But Doris Stokes, she claimed she was able to speak to the dead. This lady sold out like concert halls. She sold millions of books about like talking to disembodied voices that she would converse with. And then Seventh Son is a fantasy novel about Alvin, 
not Alvin and the Chipmunks, but this this kid Alvin, <laughs> who is the seventh son of a seventh son who possesses powers and like all these people trying to kill him. And, you know, he's getting saved because of his powers and shit like that. It's, it's actually a really cool book. And from these two things, this concept album, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son was born. And here's a little clip that I found in newspapers.com from the Baltimore Sun. It's an interview with Iron Maiden's bassist Steve Harris from September of 1988, a couple months after the album was uh, put out. And I quote, there was a famous spiritualist in England, a woman named, he calls her Barry Stokes. So maybe it was a nickname, what they called her there. She wrote quite a few books on clairvoyance and spiritualism, that sort of thing. But when she died, there was quite a bit about her in the newspapers. And it sparked me off thinking if she was supposed to be clairvoyant, I wondered if she could see her own future and indeed if she could see her own death. There are a lot of legends and different stories that come from the seventh son, Harris said. They're supposed to have powers of the second sight. And I thought it would be great to write a whole thing about it. And when I spoke to Bruce, he was really excited about it because lyrically it was something we could really dig our teeth into. Steve Harris, obviously talking about Bruce Dickinson right here. And the entire band would collaborate on this concept album. The album tells a story about clairvoyance, as I mentioned earlier, insanity and the occult. Uh, the album would go gold which is on par with most Iron Maiden albums. However, it doesn't matter. I mean, with album album sales with Iron Maiden does not matter. No. <laughs> this they went on a hundred plus stop world tour for this album. They headlined Monsters of Rock, which had over a hundred thousand people in attendance. Just listen to the openers for this fucking tour. All right. Megadeth, Guns N' Roses, Anthrax, Metallica, David Lee Roth, just to name a few because they mixed it up every few months. Shut up and take my money. <laughs> yeah, who who fucking cares if we sold 500,000 albums? Their tours are fucking epic. I mean, hopefully they do another one because uh, they now it seems like they retire every year and then they come back. But this was the release of Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, and this happened to be their seventh studio album. Wow. And was it released on the seventh? It wasn't. It was actually it was uh, April 11th. Son of a bitch, they missed out on that. <laughs> fucking record company had to fuck that one. Up. But this, I mean, it's got some great fucking songs on it. Evil That Men Do is on here. Can I Play With Madness? The Clairvoyant, obviously. Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. Great fucking album. 44 minutes of solid fucking rock. And it was... You saw them slightly going in like a little bit of a prog direction here. And it's still fucking amazing. And like I said, I think this is my favorite album of theirs. And I'm not just saying that because it's my pick. It's a fucking great album. No, I agree. I think with Maiden, once they went into that prog direction is where I really started liking some more of their stuff. Yeah, they added keyboards on this, too. Yeah, it was more intricate, more complex. You know, I really liked it. So good pick. All right, let's kick it over to Brent Hand for the final judgment on this game. Man, this was a hard one again. You guys, uh, usually there's like, wah, wah, you know, a lot of times I'm usually <laughs> that guy like, well, this one's terrible. <laughs> These have all been good. Uh, just starting from the top. The MLK, MLK, <laughs> the, the, the MK Sounder, Mortal Kombat, man. Uh, what you, you said, oh, it's all electronic. Everything was electronic then. It was crazy. High school dances, they played that at. You know, like everyone's just like, I don't know how to dance with this, but play it. What kind play of it. High school as you go to. Do, 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 do. Yeah. I ripped out a dude's heart and then my dance. Get over here. <laughs> 
so like the movie was meh, but it made money. The soundtrack made money. You know, they played it, you know, at sports arenas and stuff like that. And it's funny. So where I live, the largest arcade in the world is 10 minutes from me. It's called Galloping Ghosts Arcade. And um, Midway, who made those games, was based out of Chicago. So all the guys who were in the game originally are from here. Like the, the guys who like modeled for the stuff and then... So they're at Galloping Ghosts all the time, like every other fucking Tuesday or something. They're there, like, <laughs> signing autographs and stuff. You know, and I've been in there. I'm like, weren't you Johnny Cage? He's like, yeah. <laughs> and, like, yeah. all the ninjas and this. And that, like, they, they just, like, they played, like, multiple duties. But, yeah. And so, and then Mortal Kombat. Now they're on, like, Mortal Kombat 11, you know, or whatever. And there's there's talk of new movies and stuff. And I just actually watched recently. They had another Mortal Kombat, like, hard R cartoon that wow. was pretty good. Just incredibly gory. It's good. It's just the, the money train. And speaking of, you know, like, your fright flicks and stuff, now there's Freddy and Jason and the Predator and Terminator and RoboCop and all these in, in the Mortal Kombat mo- uh, games now. So that's solid. Uh, come sail away. Man, you, you were in a time where... Everything was experimenting with that, that, yep. you know, look at any journey cover, you know, <laughs> yes. and they're, they're flying through space, <laughs> sticks and Asia and all those, those bands, you know, were all like flirting with that weird trippy, we're not disco, but we're like, woo, out there, you know, those sounds and synth was, was really like heavy and stuff. And that's a fun song. And find me anyone who doesn't know that song. They might not, like you said, they might not know what it is about, that it's about, um, you know, g- going to the stars, but man, I really think like things like South Park and stuff have just made that part of Americana like crazy. Yeah. Uh, Iron Maiden, Seventh Son of the Seventh Son, '80s Satanic Panic was crazy, and that was one of the things that we did on Hysteria Fifty One. We did an episode on Satanic Panic and Iron Maiden, especially that uh album was one of the things where they talked about it's all. Um, uh, just horrible. <laughs> like it's just it's satanic <laughs> clairvoyances of the devil. You you know you if you're doing this you're going to hell and blah 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 and this and that and hilarity ensues. So yeah, like it's it's a, a horrible thing and and it's funny. You guys like really uh, they kind of went into progressive rock and they started pl- playing with keyboards and I really like the sound. You know and like but back then they're like you're going to hell. <laughs> you're going to hell. <laughs> Yeah, but at least it's going to sound good when you go to hell. Yeah. Well, yeah. and so I'll tell you how much has changed now is my incredibly conservative sister and her husband take their nephew. Well, their nephews are in their 20s now, but my nephews to see Iron Maiden. They've like flown them out to L.A. before to go see Iron Maiden uh, because they're such big fans. So, Dude, their it's concert weird. tickets are fucking my, my buddy yep. John goes all the time. Anytime they tour and even a shit ticket to an Iron Maiden concert is like three hundred dollars a ticket. And they sell out like that. Yeah, I saw them about a decade ago in New Jersey. It's funny you say that about, you know, your brother-in-law taking their kid to the Iron Maiden show. There was Mm -hmm. about a six- or a seven-year-old seated directly behind us who knew the words to every single song (laughs) and screamed every word at the top of his lungs. It was amazing. (laughs) You're raising them right. There you go. (laughs) Oh, man, this is a hard one. This is a hard one. Again, I could go with any of these. I think the one that's probably still churning out the most money and uh, 
dealt with aliens and another world and all that stuff. Uh, I'm going to go with Mortal Kombat, I think, on this one. Um, they all could have went. Oh, man, it's hard for me to not pick either the other two. But I think I'm going to go with that with them just because it was such a cultural phenomenon uh, that's still around and still churning out. So, Joe, you got it. Huzzah. All right, Joe, with those two points, you tie the game. That means we go to the final wild card round between you and Man Crush. We'll let Man Crush go first on this one. All right. I'm going to go movies. We'll make this nice, quick. It's This is a fucking slam dunk. I could have used this for my normal pick, but I love They Live, so I just use it as my backup. So we'll go November 9th, 1988. Uh, it's a little movie about a single mother who gives her son a much sought after doll for his birthday only to discover that it's possessed by the soul of a serial killer in child's play. Wow. And you went with, they live over child's play. Yeah. Uh, well, either you could have went either way. Those are both monsters. Literally. I just, I love, (laughs) they live, I think is it holds up today. Not because of reboots. I think it has more cultural impact. Yeah, exactly. You know, go out and find an Obey t-shirt or things like that. You know, like, it's yeah. it's still chugging out money. Yeah. All right, Joe Finley, what do you have for the wild card round? All right, I'm going to talk movies, too, and I'm going to talk about a phenomenon that is beyond aliens or beyond uh, the usual mystery of crime. I'm going to talk about a little boy and his toy, but every time he leaves his room is the only time his toys comes to life. I'm talking about November 22nd, 1995, the release of the first ever CG animated feature length film, Toy Story. Nominated for three Oscars, won a Golden Globe, or nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Picture, uh, written by a perennial Pixar writer, Andrew Stanton, and Joss Whedon has a writing credit on that, and was the second highest grossing movie of 1995, and has spawned, well, has spawned Pixar, as well as three sequels that you know, each did better than the last, essentially, uh, created a giant and basically revolutionized animation, all based on a bunch of little toys who come to life whenever nobody's looking. And you selected usual suspects over that one. <laughs> yeah, well, in this one, I felt like a little bit more of a Hail Mary. <laughs> yeah, because it's... Uh... It would have been so much better if you combined the two, and at the end of The Usual Suspects, Kaiser Soze gets taken by The Claw. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the fucking keys, you cocksucker motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Toy Story, huge. It, it's This one is, like you said, it's a little bit of a, um uh, abstract, you know, because, but they are coming to life. And, uh, you know, it's definitely one of those movies that your kids can enjoy, but you can enjoy it as a parent, too. And they throw in some almost risque humor here and there, you know, yeah. so it is, it spawned that whole, like you said, Pixar, and then that is all you get now when you go and see animated movies is that style of computer-generated um, stuff, for better or worse. And holy hell, the 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 talent they had for, for voiceover was crazy. The original child's play was huge to me. I love them. Um, I have boycotted watching the remake <laughs> because did you, of that. Did you watch it at all or no? No, no. Oh, dude, I you know, I know. It. And I guess it's over Wi-Fi, you know, and, it's, it, <laughs> and it doesn't have the, um, you know, the guy who, who, who puts a soul into Chucky was a voodoo practitioner. You know, and he's like, he's like trying, he's not trying to go into the doll. He's trying to go into a person. And then that was just like this last ditch effort not to die. It was huge to me. 
And it has also been another thing that has been through, who doesn't know Chucky? Right. I bet people don't even realize that the original movie, they people probably like Chucky and don't even realize it's called Child's Play. You know, like, you know, all the movies, because then they're like, you know, Chucky 3, or they change it, kind of like Rambo, First yeah. Blood, they kind of just like get away with the other yeah, naming yeah. convention. <laughs> I can't believe I got to do this, but I got to go with Child's Play over Toy Story. I know Toy Story's ah. the juggernaut, but Child's Play is the demon uh, of the other world, the, the, the possessed doll voodoo, and uh, there's about... 616 uh, sequels to this uh and jennifer <laughs> tilly who has um, uh, uh amazing talents uh <laughs> also plays the bride of chucky <laughs> joe it was hard to say no I, either way either either way. way a guy with a boy with his toy who comes to life wins yeah. and that's good enough for me mom i swear to god it comes to life well whatever you say <laughs> stab stab if you're going to watch a new movie, don't worry about the story so much and just focus on the kills. Yeah. Because if, if there's anything you can take away from the new one, the the kills are gory. Really? Like, over-the-top gory. Where I, I was just like, loved it originally. Wow. Like, half the movie is just Chucky going, Rawr! you know, screaming, that dude screaming. Yeah. And I love how they even had, like, the in the sequels, they kept the kid. You know, he went to, like, military school when he yeah, got a little yeah. older. And red team, red team, come in, red team. You know, <laughs> <laughs> He's there just murdering cadets, you know? Every once in a while, you got to go evil. Why not pick a baby? Why you got to pick the kid? Move it. Move it along. Go find a homeless guy and then do it to someone else. But, you know, that the movie wouldn't have, it would have been a lot shorter. So, yeah. hey. <laughs> hey, Toy Story did the same thing. The same kid had all those toys till he went to college. Right. So, right. Toy Story probably ripped off Child's Play. Yeah. Someone saw that and go, how do we make this for kids? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just take out the death. <laughs> All right, and we'll animate it. Perfect. I'll be your friend Let's to the it. end. <laughs> well, Toy Story still had the deranged next door neighbor kid who was like massacring oh. all the toys. Yeah, Chucky wouldn't have survived Spike. Yeah. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know who did survive this game was Man Crush, who finally picks up a win with his uh, child's play pick. Congratulations, Man Crush! I did win two Cheers. weeks ago. What's the new lucky shirt? What do you have on since you burnt the last one? Oh, this is uh, my Funk U Terry Funk School of Hardcore shirt uh, that is off printed, so it, I can't even wear it in public because it's printed like by a fucking idiot. But <laughs> I can wear it here. <laughs> All right, Duelers. Well, I guess that means Man Crush picks up a victory, but I do want to thank Joe Finley for competing this week. Joe, why don't you tell everybody what you got coming up on the Miscast Commentary Podcast? All right. Well, we just wrapped up our uh, best of episodes to give us a little two-week break, and we are about to start season five, as it were. We don't really take giant breaks between these seasons, but we just mark our anniversary as the next season. So season five begins uh, next week. And uh, we just started a stream as well. I'm just kind of messing around on it now, but you'll find both of us on there doing uh, essentially our coming attractions episodes and some things like that. So you can find us over there at twitch.tv slash miscastcommentary, and you can find us at miscastcommentary.com. And I want to thank our great judge for this episode, Mr. Brent Hand. Brent, tell people where they can listen to your show, Hysteria 51. Oh, thank you, guys. It was awesome. I've wanted to do this for a while, like I said, and plus... I can just show up. I mean, who who can fight with that? It was awesome. No, and it was a lot harder than I anticipated. I don't know what I thought it was going <laughs> to be, but it was. It was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, Hysteria 51, we talk about the world of the weird aliens and cryptids and UFOs and just interesting stories, missing persons, things like that. And um, we just did a big episode. I had Max Brooks on there, Mel Brooks' son. He has his new book, uh, Devolution, out. It is a Bigfoot book that just came out. You guys might know him. He wrote World War Z the book, not the terrible movie that right. they bought the rights just to use the name to that has nothing to do with his book. But yeah, other than they built a wall <laughs> in, in that movie, it was pretty much different. But yeah, we just, we have uh, different, we have guests and we have, um, you know, we're a comedy pod. We tell Dick and Fart jokes about the unknown. So you can find us everywhere that you listen to your podcasts or at hysteria51.com. And while you're on the interwebs, duelers, head on over to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to our show on all your podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, wherever podcasts are available. And then head over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.